The Guardian. Ungvesoi, Tonhonshe Hotsham, Yavskan Ungvesoi, Ichingve Huan, Yab Tonhato Vote. This is Francisco Javier Hamoy Chindoy, one of the Kamsa indigenous people living in the northwest Amazon in Colombia. The language he's speaking is unique. It's considered by linguists unrelated to any other language we know of, but today it's spoken by only around 4,000 people and faces extinction. In this audio recording, Javier, as he goes by, is talking about the loss of his culture. We have adopted a lot of the actions and thinking of white people, he says. That is why children, young women and young people today do not want to speak our language. That is why the thinking of our elders and all their historical legacy began to be lost. Javier is also reflecting on the loss of medicinal plants, which are very important in Kamsa traditional healing. Our medicinal plants began to be lost because the activities of white people have been adopted, he goes on to say. They're using many bad chemicals, and that is why Mother Earth, our soils, are being damaged. These two things, the loss of culture and of biodiversity, might seem like separate issues, but actually they're connected. Much of the focus right now looks at biodiversity extinction, right? But there's a whole other picture out there, which is this loss of cultural diversity that is not so much spoken about. And um, the, the factors that lead to biodiversity extinction also lead to language extinction. Today, we're looking at new research on how the extinction of language could trigger the loss of knowledge about medicinal uses of plants forever. Well, at least one thing we can do is prioritize documenting this information, you know, just as we prioritize mapping the stars or exploring other planets. I think we should also look at this wonderful cultural heritage that still is alive. From The Guardian, I'm Phoebe Weston, and this is Science Weekly. One of the authors of the research paper out this week is Rodrigo Camara Leret from the University of Zurich. His work focuses on the conservation of biological and cultural heritage. I rang him up to chat about his research and I asked him how many languages there are in the world and also how quickly they're disappearing. There are about 7,000, 7,400 languages in the world. We still don't know ex the exact number because many places remain undocumented. But that's an approximate figure, and linguists estimate that there are over 30% of languages that will no longer be spoken by um, the end of this century. Some, in fact, have pointed that perhaps there will be fewer than 1,000 languages spoken in the beginning of the 22nd century. Wow, that seems like a huge amount of languages lost. It is, it is. You know, you tell biologists about this figure and they would be really surprised because we know that approximately, you know, 15% of biodiversity is endangered and much of the focus right now looks at biodiversity extinction, right? But uh, there's a whole other picture out there, which is this loss of cultural diversity that is not so much spoken about. It, it is quite 
quite stark. And in our work, we think it's it's really important to bring these two components together, which had not been associated until this moment. This idea that languages are predicted to go extinct, but we still don't know very well to what degree the extinction of these languages will bring about the loss of unique knowledge about medicinal plants. And also how much of these uses that different languages know, how many of them are, th are associated to languages that are threatened with extinction versus association with plants that are threatened with extinction. And Rodrigo, I'd love to talk more about your research in a second, but just one thing which I've been thinking while you've been talking is the difference between nature and culture. And obviously we kind of see these as two distinct things. And actually, there's so many parallels in terms of the pressures we're seeing on biodiversity and the pressures we're seeing on linguistic diversity. And perhaps these are two different aspects of the same thing. Could you talk a bit more about that? Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. I mean, many of these groups that I have worked with, they don't really discuss this duality of nature and people. We are, according to many of them, just one. So seeing us apart from our environment. It's a growing view now that we are increasingly inhabiting cities and are more detached from the outdoors. It's easier to, to buy this view of um, this separation. And um, the, the factors that lead to biodiversity extinction also lead to language extinction. So, you know, roads, for example, are a big driver of biodiversity loss. Roads also bring new ideas and they bring colonists and they bring industries and all of these factors lead to the weakening of languages by the dominant societies. So th there are many parallels in the drivers that lead to the erosion of biodiversity and cultural loss, without a doubt. And have you spent time with some of the indigenous groups that speak these endangered languages? Yes, I have. So, you know, when I did my PhD, I had the opportunity to go to the Northwest Amazon and uh, work with several dozen indigenous groups. So I, I had the fortune of living with members of the Yukuna people, the Makuna, the Cubeo, uh, the Kamsa, Achuar, Chachila, Tanimuka, and Embera. So these are all uh, indigenous groups that live um, still in a strong association with the forests and many of them still speak their languages. Many elders, in fact, only speak their language. But we see now that the young people are, are fluent also in Spanish, which is the dominant language in, in those countries. What does it take for a language to be classified as at risk of disappearing? Linguists have estimated that any language that is spoken by 20,000 people can be preserved only in complete isolation. Any figure less than 20,000 would mean annihilation if people are not in isolation, right? And the reality is that we live in a globalized world. It's kind of scary to think about this homogenization that might happen. And what are the repercussions for, for these individuals? And how do the indigenous people that you've worked with, how do they feel about the fact that their language and culture may be disappearing? Um, well, I think there's a, a very strong feeling of cultural identity with the groups I've lived with. 
for example, the Kamsa people um, from the Sivundoy Valley of Colombia, they are really doing a lot to preserve their language. In fact, they have mm, radio programs in their own language, which I think is great. The, the families I've lived with, the, the parents taught their kids their language. And they, all, they all engaged in traditional agricultural activities. They also participated in medicinal rituals. So they, they are aware of this and, and many are, are taking actions to, to reverse the current trend. On the other hand, I've also worked with members of the Carijona language who used to inhabit the Colombian Amazon. And I, I had the fortune of spending time with two Carijona elders who are probably the last, one of the last uh, speakers of their language. And, and certainly that language will uh, go extinct. So for these very small languages, there's really no little hope. Well, at least one thing we can do is prioritize documenting this information. You know, just as we prioritize mapping the stars or um, exploring other planets, I think we should also look at this wonderful cultural heritage that still is alive. So in the paper, you look at medicinal plant uses from three regions in the world. Could you give us an idea of some of the different plants in these places and also how they're being used by people? Sure. So we found there are, you know, several thousand of plant species in these three regions, the Amazon, New Guinea and North America. And you can imagine all types of uses that local communities make of them. For example, take the Cubeo Indians of the Colombian Amazon. They might harvest the stems and roots of um, different types of trees or lianas and um, use them as fish killers, barbascos as they are known, which are basically poisons that interfere with the respiration of fishes and make them come up to the surface. There are other cases of, for example, the use of latex of some plants to treat uh, fungal infections, which are very common in, in the Amazon. And then there are the use of barks to treat digestive problems or the use of fruits to treat respiratory ailments. There are also reports about um, stimulants and hallucinogenic plants. The list goes on and on. It's quite impressive. And this knowledge that you're, you've just been speaking about is presumably, it's been passed down generations. And I imagine it's incredibly detailed and sophisticated and also invaluable to the people that live in these parts of the world. For sure. You know, one of the most amazing things that all botanists have experienced when they go to the forest is their lack of knowledge about the plants that surround them. So this is even for the best plant taxonomists out there. They are amazed by the breadth of knowledge of uh, indigenous cultures about not only plants, but also animals and their interrelations. This goes on also to to the names of, of rivers, um, the mapping of landscapes, the understanding of different soil profiles, the response of plants to different types of soils, the timing of insect calls at night. They are also very attuned to the smells of the forest. And, and all of these things are not written in stone. So unlike our societies where we have 
transcribed information in, in books and computers. All of this information is learned orally. And presumably that is what makes this knowledge so vulnerable. How Could you tell us how you went about quantifying this knowledge about plants and also what you found when you started analysing it? So in our analysis, we defined the basic unit as a medicinal service, which is the combination of a plant species and a medicinal subcategory. For example, the use of Cornarus ruver, that would be the species. And for a medicinal subcategory, that would be, for example, fish poisons. When we looked at how much knowledge about medicinal services is found across languages of North America, the Northwest Amazon, and New Guinea, we found that over 75% of all the information we analyzed, about 12,500 medicinal plant services, is associated uh, to a single language, or in other words, is linguistically unique. That means that 75% of the knowledge is not shared across languages. And we also found that whereas most plant species associated with this linguistically unique knowledge are not threatened, in fact only I think fewer than uh, 5% of the plants are threatened, actually most languages in contrast that report linguistically unique knowledge are threatened. This means that this loss of languages will even have a more critical repercussion to the extinction of traditional knowledge about medicinal plants than the loss of the plants themselves. I find, Rodrigo, that stat that you just said about 75% of medicinal knowledge being unique to one language, extraordinary. And to me, that's really surprising. But I'm, <laughs> I'm wondering if you were surprised by that. I was not so surprised, but it, it is a sad story. And, uh, you know, I have mixed feelings. You know, it's, it's great to put it out there, but I kind of hope someone uh, would prove us wrong in this case and and the future would be brighter so it's it's not a surprise but it's it's frankly sad so many of our medicines do come from plants so presumably the loss of knowledge about these plants is going to impact our ability to find new medicinal discoveries in the future Certainly. I think that, um, you know, we have only screened about 6% of the plant species in the world for their biological activity. It's a tedious process. It can take 10 years from um, collecting plants to marketing a, a pharmaceutical product, right? But we should also frame it from the point of view of the communities because, you know, even when drugs are developed from these products, the communities often don't have access to them. So I would say that it's even more serious for the health impacts that might occur on the communities in the long term because they don't have access to, you know, Western healthcare in many situations. So they rely on the knowledge that they have at present about the remedies in their forests. And, and I think that's a, a critical aspect that, that needs to be more discussed. I would say there's a fantastic study that looked at the association between child health indices and the ethnobotanical knowledge of their mothers. And they found that the more knowledge mothers had, the healthier their children were. You know, if we extrapolate this finding to what our study has shown, 
that most of this knowledge is linguistically unique and might fade in the next century, then if these communities continue living without support from the government in terms of healthcare and medicines, then we could be actually seeing at important changes in their community structure and, and health. Rodrigo, what do you think we can do to preserve these languages and the unique knowledge that they contain? Well, you know, um, I'm not a linguist, but the little I know about about this field is that most linguists say that most attempts to save endangered languages have failed. The only example that is usually pointed out is Hebrew. There are efforts uh, underway to record endangered languages across the world and to build um, indigenous language libraries in audio. I think ultimately it depends on the communities themselves to be able to transmit their language. And of course, this also would benefit from programs, governmental programs that stimulate the transmission of, of languages, be it through bilingual schooling, indigenous language radios, and through, you know, just stimulating more interest in cultural heritage. And are you hopeful for the future? I am. I am hopeful. Actually, you know, despite this figure, I see my friends in, in the communities, what they are doing, the steps they are taking, how they are teaching their kids, their languages. It's also a source of joy to, to return to these communities uh, as I did a few years ago and, and sit down in, in the roundhouse and just witness at night they are still narrating their stories in their languages. They're still following like the rituals that they followed more than a hundred years ago. In, in this region, at least in the Northwest Amazon, where I've worked a lot, I, I see there's great hope. I think it's maybe not as hopeful in other places of the world. I'm thinking specifically of North America, where so many of the Native American groups are constantly battling against infrastructure development projects and um, languages are so threatened there as well. Many already have gone extinct. And it's ultimately um, a big challenge that I think should be on par with the challenge that we discuss about biodiversity. Thanks to Rodrigo Camara Leret and Javier Chindoy for talking to us. You can read an article on this research and the rest of our reporting on Age of Extinction at theguardian.com. And if you want to get in touch with the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at scienceweekly at theguardian.com. Next week, I'll be back on Science Weekly with Patrick Greenfield for an Age of Extinction double bill on wildlife trafficking. Thanks for listening. Bye. The Guardian.